come in, Parker. Sit down. <clears throat> uh, now, I've, I've called you in here because I, I don't want to show you up in front of the men. Oh, don't you, sir? That's very considerate of you. Yes, yes. Well, uh, I'll come straight to the point. Uh, we've been doing this podcast for some time now, and I've noticed that in recent episodes, some of us have been displaying a worrying lack of enthusiasm. Ah, oh, yes. That'll be Privates Rose and Martha. They do tend to grumble about things. It's not them, Parker. I'm talking about you. Me, sir? Yes, you. Now, listen to me. We don't always get a huge response to some of our items, but I've, I've noticed that every time I've done a song, at least one person has written in to complain. Well, I did warn you that it might not be wise to keep on doing the song, sir. How can I put this? You do sound a little, uh, flat sometimes. The complaints aren't about me, Parker. Then what are they about, sir? The listeners are complaining that every time we do a song, you fail to do the cheerful actions in the background. But, sir, this is audio only. Nobody can see if I do the cheerful actions or not. So I thought it would be better if I just pretended to do them. It's no good just pretending, Parker. Podcasting is a serious business. There are all sorts of enemy podcasts ready to spring into action and take over our airtime. Oh, I think that's rather overstating the case, don't you? Nonsense. There's the Shy Life podcast for a start. But they're hardly likely to invade, are they? This is no laughing matter, Parker. How would you feel if you sat down on the microphone one day and heard the tramp, tramp, tramp of Yeti Wellington boots marching up the high street? I'd think they were wearing very loud boots, sir. The high street is over four miles away. Just pull your socks up, Parker. Now, that reporter chappy is turning up today to look at my blue plaque, so make sure it gets a good polish. Very well, sir, and I'll try to do the cheerful actions in future. Good man. Actually, I'm a woman, sir. Good lord, are, are you really? Yes, sir. Look. Good heavens. I just thought you were very good at camouflage. And now, for the young in heart and weak in the head, it's Round the Archives. Matlin's holiday camp, and there are eruptions when a working model of a volcano is installed in the camp ballroom. That's Heidi Hyde next Wednesday at 7.45. In 25 minutes on BBC One, a new series unveiling one of history's lesser-known but quite revolting villains when Rowan Atkinson stars as the Black Adder. And that's after the 9 o'clock news now on BBC One with John Humphreys. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Ooh, <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> I'm Andrew. I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 21. Of Round the Archives. Of Round the Archives, goodness me. Yes, we've we got the key to the door. We've never been 21 before, except for when we were. I, I've been 21 at least twice now. Me <laughs> <laughs> too, yeah, so. Hello, um, what have we got to correct ourselves over for the previous issue? Not... A great deal. No. Only no. Um, Acer ones that there are some audio copies. Yes, of um, 
Nightmare Gas and Seven Serpents, Sulphur and Salt. And I've heard, I've heard a bit of Nightmare Gas. And you can't understand and what's it, going and on. And it's sort of, it's all... And that's about it for 25 minutes, isn't it, really? Yes, and then you get the music, and even that's not that clear. No. (laughs) But um, what else? The the blog and the videos are still going apace. Were we doing the videos when we did the last issue? I don't don't know. um, We're doing videos now hmm. as well. The videos are actually under Lisa's youtube yes. name which is lisa parker yes. there are several lisa parkers apparently there are, there are but just look for so I, i'd i'd look up something like sort of um lisa parker paddington talks yes. about paddington or about paddington because i did paddington didn't i I, did. I, wib- I wibbled that was you was it i wibbled a one of your paddingtons yes, around but you've did. done things like opening boxes of, yes, of post and a post and um tea and, making tea and uh, doctor who books and magazines yeah, and all and, sorts of Stuff. And, and we've been go- started to go through Are You Being Served? We have. So, we'll be doing more of that. Yes. yes. Um, what was the last one we did? Camping, Camping in, in. Was, was yes. it? Yeah. We, mm. we should do the next one fairly soon. We will do the next one, yes. But the first half of this issue will be themed around Dad's Army. Yes. Okay. So, um, first of all, Martin Holmes makes a welcome return to talk about the series. Yes. And also to go on location. Yes, on he- location to see... Um, a blue plaque related to mm. Dad's Army. Yes, yes, indeed. And then after that, uh, Warren will join us to talk about the episode Museum Piece. Yes, indeed. Which is getting on a bit now, just like it somebody is. who happened to be born on the day that was shown. It was shown, yes. yes. Okay, yes. Well, we're, okay. Yeah. we'll be back in a while. Okay. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? If you think we're on the run We are the boys who will stop your little game We are the boys who will make you think again Cause who do you think you are kidding Mr. Hitler If you think old England's done There are times when you wish you had a proper radio voice Like John Arlott or Alistair Cook by whom I mean the letter from America bloke, just in case you think I'm a total cricket obsessive. However, I seem to be stuck with this one, so there we are. I don't remember many series we sat down to watch as a family when I was a boy. I can remember being allowed to stay up and watch A Man Called Ironside, if I'd been good, and we all enjoyed the gentle hilarity of That's Life together before bedtime on Sunday evenings. Other than that, it's the odd Morecambe and Wise Christmas show, or the Valdunican show, or, or the good old days that mostly come to mind when I think of my parents and my sister sitting in their individual swivel chairs in the back room as I lay on the floor on the results of the ready-cut wool rug kit my sister had once made. I do remember watching Dad's Army, though. My dad loved that, but then he seemed to like anything that reminded him of his own army days, even though, having been in India and Burma during the Second World War, perhaps he ought to have preferred it ain't half hot, Mum. I actually enjoyed that a lot. Meanwhile, because it's what I do, I did sit down and watch the first ever Dad's Army, The Man and the Hour, again a few days ago, and thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm not going to go on any length, you'll no doubt be glad to know, but it struck me as an almost perfect half-hour in which to introduce a large set of brand new characters. The post-war I'm Backing Britain opening dinner was a bit of a surprise, though, with dear old Jimmy Beck there, as large as life, and old Arthur wearing his real glasses, and the opening montage mixing real newsreel footage with some specially shot stuff featuring our heroes was an interesting opening. 
After that, in four very simple setups across a rather crammed half hour, we are rather cleverly introduced via a series of perfectly judged character moments to a whole platoon of iconic characters that the country came to know and love. In the bank, where the soon-to-be Captain Mannering gets his first victim of circumstance moment, the church hall, the vicar's office, and the church hall again for hints and tips on how to disable a tank. It's also beautifully observed, too, with each of them getting moments and, a, and chances to shine and display their characters. Godfrey's gun, Jones using ration meat to gain favours, Walker selling his watches. Granted, Fraser being a philatelist seems a tad peculiar, but there are reasons for that, and he gets the great S-H-O-P line, too. Finally, after the uniforms and weapons, armbands and pepper, are delivered, we get a final rousing and rather stoic speech from Captain Mannering, ending with a rousing, Come on, Adolf, we're ready for you, which is all rather moving. Mind you, displays of genuine stoicism always make me blubber just a little bit. The black and white episodes always seem strange nowadays, though, possibly because they've not been shown quite as much. Captain Mannering's hat seems wrong, and the walking on the spot on an overlaid image end credits just seem peculiar after we've been watching the other version for so many years. The opening credits are pretty much the same as the later ones, even though they do get tidied up a little bit for the colour version. And I'm probably not the first to suggest that the current BBC News Brexit graphics of a plucky little Union flag star escaping from the European Ring of Gold stars owes a little something to those graphics and shows how much it seeped into the popular culture. I found out recently that Arthur Lowe was born just a very few miles from here in Hayfield, Derbyshire, and that several years ago Derbyshire County Council put up a blue plaque on the house to honour his memory. Knowing this, on a recent Sunday morning, before there was any chance of running into people attached to the plaque, I went off to see if I could find it. On a bright, fresh, chilly Sunday morning, on my way to Morrison's, I suddenly thought, you know what, I live up the road from Hayfield, I'm just going to pop in and see the birthplace of Arthur Lowe. So I drove up the road, a very narrow road, and found a parking space and strolled down, took a couple of pictures, and uh, there it is, the blue plaque that uh, Derbyshire County Council put on the front of his birthplace uh, on Kinder Road, not kind of, Kinder, uh, leading up to Kinder Scout in the beautiful sort of uh, Derbyshire countryside. And um, that's where Arthur Lowe was born. The, the plaque's sort of large and round, which sort of seems appropriate in, in some ways. And uh, if you look across the road, well, there's a house, row of houses across the road, but um, there's a cricket pitch behind it, which reminds me of that Fred Truman episode. But then again, you look at his house, and it's all very simple. It's just a simple stone terrace in a, in a small town in Derbyshire. Um, he would have been born there in the early part of the last century, I suppose, and... Or the late part of the previous century, even now, crikey! And um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's modest, you know. And uh, up the just up the road from him, there's a very large house which looks very nice. But uh, I suspect he may have walked past that a few times. But uh, that's the birthplace of Arthur Lowe, marked with the blue plaque by uh, Derbyshire County Council back in uh, 2011. Fabulous, absolutely fabulous. Don't learn anything much about actual Arthur Lowe. From looking at a blue plaque, I suppose. I mean, you know, I don't know much about how he grew up or why he decided to escape Derbyshire, but uh, there he is, good old Arthur, immortalised in stone, well, on metal, in stone. Fabulous. I realised afterwards that, stupid boy that I am, and I swore I wouldn't say that, because this is just audio, I could have done all of that without leaving the comfort of my own home. But there you go. I also realise that going off script probably isn't my best way of doing these things, but I digress. I don't actually have the box set of Dad's Army, despite being tempted several times over the years, and dropping huge hints about how much I enjoy it whenever I'm drawn into an episode. We have, 
I'm told, far, far too many DVDs as it is, and adding more to them is probably not the most sensible option as we find ourselves drowning in stuff. I do, however, have my dad's old book of Dad's Army scripts that I think he once picked up in one of those Reader's Digest offers he was once so terribly fond of, which is why titles like Asleep in the Deep and Keep Young and Beautiful tend to resonate so much. Then, when I started to think about possibly doing a short thing for this edition, I also found a rather natty little guidebook volume in a charity shop for a couple of quid. There was also a porridge one with it, and the moment I got home I immediately began to regret not picking that up too. Anyway, despite that, I thought I'd briefly share just a few of my own memories of that fine and much-loved comedy series with you. Like the episode, I spent laughing until it genuinely hurt. The one with the clock tower, when Corporal Jones is doing all sorts of acrobatics around the flagpole. The ghostly fingers of the late Private Walker, writing in the condensation. And Talfrin Thomas, as a comedy Welshman, Mr Cheeseman. I think my dad, Hlantrisant born and bred, rather enjoyed him. Ah, there are so many happy memories, but I mustn't go on and outstay my welcome. Good luck, Andrew and Lisa, with this Dad's Army special. I know it's a series that holds a great place in your hearts. One last thing. I do remember the family watching the last episode live when it was first broadcast. How worryingly older John LaMazzurio looks when you see that one now. And I had a genuine something in the eye when they raised their drinks to toast Britain's real home guard after Hodges has cruelly told them that any real Nazis would go right through them, triggering memories of that stoic speech way back in episode one, and inadvertently proving their bravery, because even knowing this, they'd still have been prepared to stand and fight anyway. That certain night, the night we met, there was magic abroad in the air. There were angels dining at the Brits. And a nightingale sang in Brockes Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? If you think we're on the run We are the boys who will stop your little game We are the boys who will make you think again Cause who do you think you are kidding Mr. Hitler If you think old England's done Mr. Brown goes off to town on the A21 but he comes home each evening and he's ready with his gun So who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? If you think all England Good evening, Warren! Stupid it's boy. It's not good evening, it's <laughs> good afternoon. I was trying to pretend we were doing night filming. Okay. Greetings and salutations. Hello. Hello. We are here today to talk Hello, about Lisa. Hello. Uh, Lisa's here. Yes. We are here today <laughs> to talk about Dad's Army Museum piece. We are. Which is episode two. That's the whole cast, isn't it? <laughs> episode two of the first series, shown on the 7th of August, 1968. <laughs> What is Men- 1968? Many years ago now. Well, well, yes. What's the relevance of that date? Mm. Um, somebody might have been born that yeah, day. Somebody was I don't think mm. who no. might be approaching their 50th birthday, but there mm. we go. 
So, <laughs> Warren, I get the feeling you weren't that familiar with the episode. No, I wasn't. I've seen um, Man of the Hour. Yes, episode mm. one. Um, I've not actually seen much of uh, season of the, one. Of the black and white stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Which is most unlike me, because you know like, I've got a poncho. <laughs> poncho? You've got a poncho. <laughs> a poncho. <laughs> suits you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, for black and white stuff. So mm. um, I haven't got around to seeing it all. Okay. But I have to be in a certain mood for Dad's Army. Okay, right. But um, let, let's, 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 let's start with you first, Warren, because you've been... Mm. Up Thetford Way, haven't you? I've been I've been to the Far East, you know. Yeah. Far East. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain what Thetford is and what its relevance is to what Dad's Thetford Army. Is? What Thetford is? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've never been there. Not Thetford is a market town okay. in East Anglia. East Anglia. East Anglia, and it, it's the location in which the um, the cast were based. Mm. When filming their location work on Dad's Army, okay, they're based in the Crown Hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the hotel I, I stayed in. Um, John Lemessurier's room. All right. Before I got married, across right. the road at the um, John Lemessurier wasn't there at the time. I take it. Um, well, his ghost may well have been. There was a <laughs> gin and tonic on the side there, <laughs> and um, that's where they were based. Mm. And interestingly enough, attached to the side of the building now mm. is a guide to the locations of Dad's Army. Because there is a museum, isn't there? There is, yes. It's uh, open from Easter till October. Oh, like the old Doctor Who exhibitions used to be. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's uh, in a, like, uh, a large um, 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 farm building, actually. Oh, right. Uh, near the mill. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that they have got a website. Yes. And their pride of place is Jones's van. <laughs> their pride is Jones's van and that's in Does it there. still go? It does go, yes. Yeah, right. yes. Well, when Victoria Wood drove it. Well, yeah, but that was badly. a while ago and now. I remember seeing Victoria Wood filming that. Oh, right. Because at that moment I was living up in Thetford. Yeah. And yes, um, I remember seeing them filming and somebody sat next to them with a camera on my shoulder. Oh, gosh. You do get around, don't you? I get around. <laughs> <laughs> and of course behind the pub yeah. is, is the small little river and across from the river is Arthur Lowe. All right. Sat there. He must be getting very bored now. Got a statue. Immortalised in bronze. Ah, I see. <laughs> oh, there goes Rose jumping about. <laughs> um, but what sort of famous, um, ro- well, I was say roads, but locations are there? Because there's some bits you can recognise in the episodes. Yeah, there's the town hall, yeah. which is extremely recognisable. It hasn't changed at all. It's even got the no parking printing still outside the front <laughs> that they blacked out on the, uh, the but more um the the one that most people recognized is mill lane yes which is um deadly attachment oh yes when they're walking along um with the the, the bomb in the trousers bomb in jones's trousers <laughs> yeah. the comedy piece with the trousers <laughs> um uh, but there are just various little streets yeah little side streets you'll go i know, I know that. i've I know seen that. that i've seen that yes yeah, and it is um it hasn't been developed upon the main areas where they were filmed and it is very recognizable still mm, interesting so uh, do, you, do you go there much or just um, i haven't been up there for at least two three years all right okay mm. fair enough I've, I've, said I've never been so interesting anyway let's uh return to the episode itself if you pass me my notes lisa mm-hmm. um in these early days, when the title sequence comes up, now in episode one, 
uh, the audience laugh at the title sequence because they've not they've not seen it before. But by episode two, either they don't laugh or they just mix them off the soundtrack. But it does actually say episode two, mm. um, which they carry over into the second series as well because mm. it says episode one and episode two on on what survives <laughs> of that, which is interesting. Um, but we said Ian Lavender is extremely young in this, isn't yes. he? Yes. Well, he was born in 1947, I think. Yeah. So oh, goodness and me. he's not he's quite decided on his accent yet, No, he? he's, he's no. doing some sort of weird he, accent. Do you yeah. think he was schooled by Troby in his, <laughs> his accent? <laughs> I can do accents. Very good Indian. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you said... Um, does he not come across quite as mummy's boy? You say no. He, he's, he's a bit more independent. Yeah, a bit more really. grounded, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's yeah. some continuity to the first episode because they talk about Bracewell, and you don't actually see Bracewell in this mm. episode, or indeed mm. ever again. No, that, that's John Ringham. John Ringham, yes. Yeah. yes. They mention about his number three iron, mm. which is, is <laughs> the weapon that he's he's carrying. But I mean, the whole point of this episode is they're trying to get hold of some weapons because mm-hmm. this is still early days they haven't got the uniforms no. they haven't got the weapons all they've no. got is armbands i yes. love their armbands. and what did you notice about the armbands warren <laughs> well um uh john the measure has drawn stripes three stripes chevrons yeah. on his and corporal jones has got the one yeah. <laughs> captain manor has written the words captain i, I think, think he just says yeah. cap actually does it say cap because yeah. <laughs> there's a much later line um uh, dear cap isn't there yes. which is the letter from um walker, from walker yeah. dear cap i just wonder if oh, yeah. that's a reference to, to that <laughs> i think it just says cap i'd need to zoom in and have another look but uh, <laughs> yes yeah, so i mean the whole point of this thing is that they're and indeed the whole series is that they're trying their best with what they've got available and, mm. and trying and to, that's not much and trying to use their initiative it's very mm. make, make do and mend mm. doesn't it because yeah. you, you said lisa about when the film came out somebody was interviewed yeah they interviewed a former home guard um member who'd never watched dad's army because he considered it to be taking the mickey out of it yeah. and i think he and he also wasn't going to see the film because he considered that to be taking mm. the mickey but in both cases i think he should have because Although they are bumbly and they get things wrong, they're doing their best. And in certain episodes, like the Battle of Godfrey's Cottage, they're perfectly willing to go to their deaths yeah, as they yeah. see it. And it's the same in the film. There's a lovely bit in the film with um, Walker's character, where who never shows that much bravery in the television series, yeah. where he, he, he does something to save Captain Mannerin's life. And it's a really nice yeah, character yeah, moment yeah, for him. Yeah. So yeah, it's, oh, that's when he drives his truck. He drives his truck and throws the match in the back. Yeah. He's yeah. got a load of petrol in it, and it blows up and and saves Captain Manning. So yeah, it's you shouldn't underestimate them. They are bumbly. They do get stuff wrong. They do snipe at each other. Mm. But ultimately, they would lay down their lives for each other. But Warren, I I have to ask you because um, I I know you sort please of, do dear boy. I do. You, you you grew up in Cranbourne, and can you? sort of identify with that sort of village atmosphere of everybody sort of pulling together you know meeting in the te- in the in the, the church hall, hall. Yeah, yeah i could i could see them meeting in the in the church hall and saying the uh, the vicar yeah. addressing them all yeah and saying we want volunteers so so i, I think to pe- people of yeah. our background it's it's possibly more identifiable than it's very much a generational thing yeah Ooh, hello. Oh, we're just just knocking stuff off it's all right Warren. <laughs> keep going permission to sing sir 
I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll do my famous impression of being so especially for you. And when we really get cracking, we'll have a good time. It's so nice to sing, sir, because it's all in rhyme. It gives a man comfort here in the front line. Permission to sing, sir. So the LDV were named by Anthony Eden, who was um, Churchill's deputy, uh, and Churchill hated it. So within the year, they were changed. What the name? Yeah, yeah. Why, why didn't you like the he name? Just did, it didn't sound um, militaristic enough. All right. It didn't sound. It sounded amateur. Did it? it sounded very amateur. Well, it's probably the use of volunteers. Yeah. Um, mm. So they went for uh, Home Guard. Okay. Mm. Bit of history there for you. Mm. <laughs> now we we come to the sort of most unexpected bit of this episode um, where we meet Jones's dad because <laughs> <laughs> very unexpected yes and everybody seems surprised that he's still got a father living yeah. but, or a but, father but, <laughs> but th- this is reminiscent of a certain Will Hay film isn't it yes Warren you, I know you like your Will Hay films yes Ask a Policeman so what, what, what's Ask a Policeman um, three bumbling police officers working out of the lighthouse in mm-hmm. the town and there's smuggling going on below their lighthouse and there's this uh, the way they smuggle things in and out is through a headless horseman driving a flaming um, hearse. Yeah. Uh, now there's a rhyme that that, um, that, that, that is key to the detection of uh, where the smugglers are coming in. Now Harbottle is the senior policeman, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. He 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 was he's about nine hundred years old. Yeah. He has one tooth, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's played by really Moore Marriott. Moore Marriott, who was playing uh, twice his age, very much uh, actually in the vein of uh, Clive Dunn mm. as well. And uh, he has a father, yeah, <laughs> who Will Hay refers to as Adam. We're off <laughs> to see Adam, and they see this very old, old and crusty gentleman in bed, wasn't it? And yeah. So, and he says to his son, "What's the matter? School, school, school holidays already?" <laughs> but yeah, the I mean, Jones's dad is eighty-eight. And he's been married three times, mm. which is interesting. Yes. <laughs> you have to remember there was no television or central heating in those days. <laughs> yeah, so. it had something to do, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we do get a tiny little bit of um, filming at this point when um, they go to the museum um, with the milkman's horse, don't mm. they? <laughs> the milkman's horse keeps stopping because that's how he's used to, to doing his rounds. Um, we get... Then pu- pulling the sort of bell pull on the, on the um, what was it, the Peabody Museum of Historical uh, Army Weaponry. And the uh, it's one of those big pull things like from the Adams family or something. And the, the, it's the first of the wobbly walls, isn't it, in this <laughs> yeah. episode? Yeah. I think John Nemej has a pull on it. You can see the, do- <laughs> the, the wall going. Yep. The other thing I have there, it must be an exceptionally small museum because when they uh, run at the door... Oh, they go straight through and out the yeah, other side. Yeah, the door, and it's literally an arm's length path. <laughs> I think it? I think you have to turn left or right. I think God, it's just... it must be an immediate left in <laughs> <laughs> the backyard. But there's there's this lovely line about um, Jones's dad. He he still thinks Queen Victoria is the king, <laughs> which, which is one of those very strange lines that always makes me laugh. But uh, it's just a bit just a bit odd that one. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Mannering's already doing the um, hat and glasses askew. 
routine, isn't mm-hmm. he? And, and he sort of falls over. And Jones loses his trousers on the assault course. Oh yes, yeah, so that's yeah. the film right at the start. Yeah, yeah. They attack they attack the museum with a battering ram, which immediately <laughs> falls apart. And I, I said to you, um, I, by the look of it, they only had one attempt at doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've got Fraser disguised as an ARP warden trying to get in. Uh, with no, his, trying to get him out. Well, try, well try, yeah, trying to get the old man out. Mm. Um, Drunk as the Lord in the process. Yeah, he's got his <laughs> bottle of scotch, um, but he's not supposed to drink any of it, is mm. he? Um, and there's a bit where he's he's, he's just about to raise it to his um, mouth, and a hand comes through the um, the peephole and takes it back away, <laughs> which presumably belongs to. Is, that, is that line about uh, opening the door in my nightshirt? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that that's old that, joke. That's the old jokes, isn't mm. it? But um, then a boy scout um, sort of um, turns up as well. Yes. Now, who, who's playing the boy scout, Lisa? Michael Osborne, who will go on to play Sorak. In the horns of Nymon. Yeah, but you're trying to work out. Yeah, well, according to IMDb, who of course could be wrong, he's twenty at this point. He doesn't look twenty. He really doesn't look twenty. So I wonder whether he's actually born in about nineteen fifty, which would make him about eighteen. Because horns of Nymon is nineteen seventy nine. Yes. And how old do you think he looks in there? I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, he's in an episode of Who Done It, and we watched that, and he looks. He doesn't look as young then. That's. I mean, that's. What another six, seven years on? So <laughs> he, he just—I I don't believe he's twenty. Right. They—if he's twenty, hats off to the makeup department who have made him look a lot younger. <laughs> so, well, um, there's a bit of fooling around when they do get into the museum because mm. uh, breaking of things, break, and... breaking of glass, oh, and mm. things like that, with sound effects that are slightly too late, <laughs> aren't they? Was <laughs> it you said old gold sugar, sugar glass, glass again? again. <laughs> well. And, what's and it's it? the stock footage sound, the usual sound of glass shattering. Glass breaking, the, yeah. yeah. And you mm. notice that there was the sound problem as well, like the boom microphones over <laughs> in one corner of the studio and Jones has to say a line on the other side and you, can like, you can't hear what he's saying at first till the boom <laughs> microphone gets there. Um, but although the, the rifles that they're after have um, been taken by Ensa, um, <laughs> who, who were Ensa? It's the entertainment's so if they used to go around and do I don't know what the actual acronym stands for but they used right. to go around and do shows for people um, but, but you know but I want to say people I mean people in the army yeah. um, to keep up at their spirits yeah. and, like Gracie Fields would go and oh, sing at them and, um, <laughs> and, and Vera Lynn and stuff so, but yeah so it was yes so I think what it was is if you were in the army, but you weren't a very good soldier. They'd mm. just stick you in Ensa. Yeah. So I think like Larry Grayson was in Ensa and Kenneth Williams. Yeah. And all these sorts of people you a, can't I imagine. I see a pattern forming yeah. here. All these people you can't really imagine actually being sort of proper soldiers, yeah. for want of a better yeah. word. They don't like up them. No. So. <laughs> no. But I suppose we should say about um, David Croft. Cause yes. We haven't actually said about yes. David Croft yes. yet. Co-writer. Although we've talked about his... Um, you know, various series that he's mm-hmm. been involved with. Yes. We've never actually said his local connection. No. Um, which is? He was born in Sandbanks. And Sandbanks is? He's in Paul. It's the posh part of Paul. Yeah. It's where all the posh knobs go to live now. Posh knobs. All the knobs live. Yeah. But, yeah, Sandbanks has got houses that, you know, will cost you four million pounds yes. and above, yeah, If you've got a it? couple of million quid to, to blow, Sandbanks is your place. But, which is fine until it all erodes away. Yeah. But yeah, David Croft was just born in a bungalow. In a bungalow, yeah. Not as a very big house. Yeah. But yeah, and you said he'd returned 
down here I think a few he times. came down a few times because he had an aunt who lived in Weymouth, I think it was. Oh, right, okay. I think they came down here in the Second World War when, when the Blitz started in the Second World War before he was um, conscripted into the army. They came down here because it was seen as potentially safer than staying in London mm, okay, and, and getting bombed the hell out of. Hmm. So... But yeah, they do eventually get a Chinese rocket gun circa 1901. Mm. <laughs> and you, you said, they're not going to attempt to do special effects in the studio, are they? No, it's clear that the visual effects department wasn't up to its standard of, say, the goodies or <laughs> are you being served at that point? Well, you do get a few puffs of smoke, don't you? Yeah, um, yes. And some sound effects that, again, don't, <laughs> don't quite... match. The, the camera is pointing down the barrel of the yeah. blasted thing, so you'd expect something to appear out the end like a puff of smoke. Yeah. But all, it just all comes the out the back. It all comes out the back, yeah. <laughs> after, the, um, after the scout has unbunged his tubes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's not the most complex of episodes. No. It's, it's, it's Easy watching. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's again. And I th- we've said this before, that... If we just choose a random date, mm. we tend to get ser- um, an episode that's just representative of the series. Yeah. It's not yeah. a particularly well thought of one, but it's still very serviceable bit of bit of comedy. There's there's some yeah. nice bits and pieces in there. I think it's um, interesting to hear the um, audience reaction mm. because we're looking at the second story here. Yeah, and it is still treading water, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the format is is. Is not fully established yet. No. That um, the characters aren't bedded in because I mean yet, you don't they? get Fraser being the Undertaker for quite some time. Oh right, I... yeah. He, mm-hmm. uh, there's no mention of that because you notice he's in his like sort of sailor's yeah. sort, um, of, sort of outfit yeah. at the moment. Yeah, and you're not getting the catchphrase so much at this point. No, either. no you're no. not getting. Um, no, those, those evolve. Permission over, to over, speak, sir. Those, oh, you get that a bit. Yeah, but... those evolve over the first couple of years. Yeah. I mean, you're not so. you're not getting we're doomed. Yeah. That was a really rubbish Scottish accent. <laughs> Do you want to do that again? No. We'll do it together. One, two, three. Window! <laughs> Apologies to everybody in Scotland. Yes. Well, no yes. choice of you. And you don't get stupid boy either, do you? No. Because he's no. not a stupid boy at this point. No, he's very, no. He's far more intelligent. Yeah. I don't know what happened, whether yeah. he fell on his head or something during the news. But he's far more intelligent now. Yeah. And he's quite a nappy dresser, isn't he? A nappy dresser. A nappy dresser. A nappy dresser. He's a natty dresser. He's wearing a neckchief, isn't he? Yeah. And a shirt. Like and a cravat, kind of. Yeah. He's, thing. he's yeah. almost. Proto Ridge, is it? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think he's. He, it's based on Wilson. All right. Oh, he's aping Wilson. Yeah, he's yeah. aping his dad. I'm um, sorry. He's aping <laughs> his uncle, 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 Arthur. uncle Arthur. Uncle Arthur. Yeah, because that is the only father figure he has. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah. But it's done quite subtly. Yeah. But interesting to actually see pictures of Jimmy Perry at that age, because obviously you know. Um, well, you've probably got Pike some is, in a book somewhere. We've got but... a book here somewhere, but Pike is based on Jimmy Perry. Yeah, all right, yeah. Because um, it's all about Jimmy Perry's experiences yeah. of being in the Home Guard before he went off to the war. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would be interesting to see whether that's how he dressed, yeah. and that's what the wardrobe department have done, mm-hmm. and whether like he's, he's twigged it and gone, no, like don't do that. It doesn't <laughs> look right. Because returning to the Will Hay films, because that's wasting your time was partially inspired by the Will Hay films. In that yeah. you had the pompous man, yes, which is Manring. You had the old man. Mm. Which is Jones, Jones, and then you had the young boy, young fool, the young fool, yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. Pike, yeah. So it, it's yeah. you know it's a format that was working in the thirties. Yeah. It was a format that works in the sixties yeah. when these episodes, were made. and it still works to this day. It That's does. I think it's very yeah. classic yeah. comedy sort of 
setup. Mm. So there we go. But yes, yeah. but yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting episode mm. of Dad's Army. It's 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 yeah, it's sort of fun. It's always nice to see something in its infancy because yeah. you know where it's going. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And and as as we always say, you know, decisions will be made over the over the course of the next year that that will affect how the show yeah. the show works. But there we mm. go. So there's Museum Piece, episode mm-hmm. two, and uh, we'll say ta and yes. we'll ta-ra. Come back with something out. Ta-ra, then. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you very much to Warren for that. Yes, thank you, Warren. Please come back soon. The cats like seeing you. So. Yes, I expect you will. Yes. And thank you also to Martin for yes. going on location. Yes, a very interesting article. We yes. don't we don't get much sort of OB work. No. Uh, no. Round ra- here we've got a few quarries, haven't we? Yes, but, uh, yes. Mostly used for... Doctor um, Who. Doctor Who, Tenko and Bojest. Well, it's all the same quarry, really, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> really, yes. But we're very pleased now that Martin makes a rapid return to look at the history of the Black Arrow. this look at an episode one we're going back to a time before cunning plans were particularly cunning a time before edmund was the smart one and it turns out baldrick was the apparently slightly smarter one a time before ben elton was brought in to double the number of laughs on half the budget and a time before anyone thought of adding lyrics to the theme tune in the fine tradition of the blackadder dynasty one of these claims is an utter lie but for the moment i'm not going to tell you which So having got myself an appalling haircut, slid on my itchiest tights, and strapped on an amusing codpiece shaped not unlike an underexcited parsnip, it's time to settle down on a commodious armchair and watch the very first episode of The Black Vegetable. Okay, it's not called that at all. It is, of course, the first version of a now classic comedy called The Black Adder, from a time when that could still be written as two words, and the opening episode is called The Foretelling written by Richard Curtis and Rowan Atkinson and directed by Martin Shardlow. The whole damn dynasty starts with a blank screen and a voiceover, and it's rather impressive voiceover at that, because it's the warm, commanding, silky tones of Patrick Allen that we first hear, here of the helicopter and the affordable housing, making all of us who have 
voices, which we intend to be heard in an audio medium, scuttle away, back under our rocks in shame with our own comparatively unimpressive squeaking. We are told, by means of a short illustrated lecture, that history is full of liars. Copernicus, Goebbels, which gets a slightly embarrassed titter from the laugh track, Ralph the Liar, to whom we shall return, and the one-day future Tudor King Henry VII, a face we do need to become familiar with, and one played in this instance by the mighty-nosed Peter Benson. Future King Henry, currently going under the far less impressive name of Henry Tudor, it is claimed, for comic effect, was the one who rewrote history to portray Richard III as a deformed maniac who killed his nephews in the Tower. But, hang on! Who is this mal-shaped comic performer menacing the amused young princes with a comedy knife and a removable artificial hump? Why, tis none other than comedy legend Peter Cook. I hope you heard the triple exclamation marks there, playing the lovable old king. And when one of those princes grows up to be a big strong boy in this rewritten history, who should he transmogrify into but crikey, it's only Brian Blessed, almost fresh from his career-transforming role as Voltan in the Flash Gordon movie. Onwards, my Hawkmen! Incidentally, if you want to see how brilliant and subtle an actor Brian Blessed can be post Z cars, take a look at his turn as Augustus in the I Claudius series, particularly his death scene, which is as astonishing and memorable a piece of television as you're ever likely to see, as the camera stays on his face forever and the life seems to actually fade from his staring, unblinking eyes. Here we see him rolling his eyes as being crowned king in a clip from sometime later in the episode, for, as we shall discover, King Richard IV was crowned shortly after the Battle of Bosworth and ruled for 13 glorious, if not exactly genuine, years in one of the alternative interpretations of history. So now, as Patrick's voice reaches a crescendo and the fanfare of the opening credits finally arrive, we know our place in history and where and when we actually are. You're immediately struck by how expensive the filming all looks, despite the horrible video captions overlaid on the location film work. And with all those horses running around in genuine locations, and even a comedy fall by an actual stuntman looking for all the world as if he's plunging headlong from actual battlements. Rowan Atkinson, who will be playing Edmund, long before his most famous role as the ninth Doctor Who, ahem, was at this time, you may recall, a huge BBC star, riding the crest of a wave of success brought along by his appearances on Not the Nine O'Clock News, like a particularly fine stallion eager to soar over Beecher's Brook and claim that first place in a Grand National by several country miles. Well, under the circumstances, given all the horseplay we're about to witness, perhaps we'd better avoid the whole stallion analogy. But his star was very much in the ascendant, and astonishingly, there is a sense that this incarnation of the series, so very much identified with its co-writer and star, very nearly brought his career crashing right back down to earth. And yet it looks gorgeous. In BBC terms, lavish and expensive. Money, as they say, has been spent. A lot of money. If the banquet before the Battle of Bosworth scene is to be believed, later series might have had to film this entire scene from inside a cupboard, with many a hurrah and huzzah heard from without but here we are getting a serious wedge of money's worth and as the camera pulls back we catch an almost insignificant glimpse of our soon-to-be heroes at the bottom right hand corner of the screen brian blessed bellows for silence which is just about as ridiculous an idea as it sounds after which peter cook doesn't so much eat up the scenery as devour it giving an alternative and upbeat rewritten take on the famous now is the winter of our discontent speech then Edmund, the not-yet-titular character, inappropriately toasts the king. He's currently in his useless, feckless, younger sibling guise, wearing clownish clothing, garish colours, and a terrible, but not yet as terrible as it will be, haircut. Here he finally makes his first proper appearance, much to the embarrassment of just about everyone. 
and now we discover Edmund's useless place in the great scheme of things in the court of his uncle Richard. Brian has to be told who his other son is by his firstborn son, a strangely administrative statistician type called Harry. He's introduced as Edmund, which is immediately misheard as Edna, and so a running gag is born. Meanwhile, some dark satire creeps into the proceedings, as suggested that Edmund will, despite all his best efforts, be fighting in the battle tomorrow, and his for-the-enemy-with-the-enemy slip of the tongue means that nobody wants him to be anywhere near them on the field of battle, wisely as it turns out, and it is suggested that they put him amongst the rabble rate making up the arrow fodder. Bit of politics there, yes indeedy. He exchanges a reluctant wave with his Uncle Richard, who mutters, What a little turd! which was, presumably, considered an acceptable and unbelievable word in BBC comedy circles back then during prime time. Misunderstanding the situation as ever, Edmund is pleased that the king has picked him out for a special greeting, although the even more foolish Percy, the nearest thing to a friend Edmund has, has failed to notice the greeting. I saw it, my lord, says a wine-pouring servant, fawning opportunistically to our gurning anti-hero. He has asked his name, which is Baldrick, so Edmund announces that he shall call him Baldrick. There's a major moment in television history right there. In reply, Baldrick announces that I shall call you my lord, my lord. And with the cut of his jib, having found favour with this feckless poltroon, Baldrick is nominated to be Edmund's squire in the battle to come. And so we have finally met the trio of not exactly pals who will be drawing most of our attention during the rest of the programme and the series. A group of varying degrees of idiot, wearing a selection of bad hats. Although such things are relative, this fellow called Baldrick seems comparatively wise, as he pours Edmund's wine, and it appears that he is intent upon becoming Edmund's personal servant, and is cunningly planning upon going up in the world to the giddy heights of wallowing in a slightly better pile of dung. The other feckless idiot, Percy, is loitering around like he's a shoo-in to win any who's the dimmest competition you might want to put him forward for, making up this full set of classic and golden comedy characters and potentially hilarious interactions. Tony Robinson plays this strangely and worryingly almost clever version of Baldrick, and Tim McKinney is Percy. Both will pop up in other guises to a lesser or greater extent in future incarnations of the show. Several jokes follow, most of which seem to be centred around being chopped to pieces, how to prove your manhood, mentions of water closets, and the possibility of genitalia ending up in a tree in Rutland. All of which segues rather nicely back to the location work film of Peter Cook. Once more, standing in a field, mashing up little Billy Shakespeare's Henry V with a smattering of Dicky Three or Rutland Tree, gotta have a system, intercut with Brian Blessed giving it some, and Prince Harry being slightly more apologetic and posh, making up a very different trio to the ones we were just introduced to as they head off towards battle upon Ralph the Liar's Day. I said he'd be back. Back in the studio, Edmund, Baldrick and Percy have overslept and Edmund's rather wonderful mother, played by the rather wonderful Elspeth Grey, arrives to ask him if he wanted to go to the battle. After a dodgy sight gag involving ho-ho, a sundial alarm clock, we head back out to the location for some what direction is the battle, horses silhouetted against the skyline stuff, on the day of Edmund's first decent battle since he reached puberty, apparently. However, when they arrive at the top of a rather convincing grassy knoll, the unseen sight of the actual battle appalls Edmund so much that his five counties wide street of cowardice manifests itself and he decides that he is not needed as things appear to be all going rather well without him and he finds himself rather surprised that some people are so relaxed about it that they are simply lying down. It's left to Baldrick in a reversal of their future relationship to deadpan the obvious they're dead my lord and off Edmund goes to throw up behind a Leicestershire tree. In the midst of battle, or a few extras and some smoke if you prefer, Richard the Blessed finds Richard the Cook 
horse hunting in a rather jolly way because the battle is won, and then he does indeed find one. Unfortunately, this particular horse belongs to Edmund, who promptly lops his head off for his impudence. Fairly quickly, the surprisingly bloody head is, is indeed revealed to be his uncle Richard, and after some head-tossing with Baldrick in an oh-dear-Richard-the-third kind of a way, he tries putting it back on the king's shoulders with little success, and even administering some rather desperate CPR. Ultimately, a convenient hut is espied, and they unceremoniously drag away the body, unfortunately leaving the head behind, the sight of this sight gag causing much mirth on the laugh track. By the time they get inside a particularly huge and dung-plastered studio hut, it is Baldrick who is doing most of the heavy lifting, and they finally notice that the head has been left behind. However, Percy has found it, and this so-called brainless son of a prostitute seems to want to use it to prove he's a man. This head of a nobleman will be his proof, although when he discovers exactly which nobleman, another game of toss the helmet erupts between the trio. Fortunately, they are interrupted. Losing the battle, running away, and bursting in on them as unannounced, Cowardly old Henry Tudor turns up bellowing, All is lost, flee to anyone who will listen. They immediately leave him to his fate, but then he mentions having 10,000 sovereigns, which instantly makes them return. A future version of Edmund would be rubbing his hands with delight. Back at the castle, the Queen is awaiting the return of the men from the battle, because these are unenlightened times, the 1980s. There are one or two rather too flippant ravishment gags. Sigh of the I-won't-bother-to-change-then type until the drums of an approaching army are heard, and Edmund, with his advance insider-trading knowledge of the king being lost, suggests rather desperately they are really, really ought to be fleeing by now. Run to the hills! They're coming from the hills! Run away from the hills! And so on. Edmund lets it slip that he already knows Richard is dead, which, as the Queen puts it, has really upset the tulip card. The victorious army approaching under a false flag being the very first cunning trick, not yet quite a cunning plan, of the series. And after another round of utter cowardice from Edmund, the mighty Brian Blessed crashes home for another round of ravishment gags with his insatiable wife, and finds out that the Queen thinks Richard is dead, and in the midst of a flurry of obfuscation and backpedalling from Edmund, a rather poetic Prince Harry arrives, carrying the body that proves that this is indeed so. And so, in the presence of a rather alarming knight wearing an absolutely huge set of antlers on his helmet, there's a sudden coronation. Brian Blessed's Richard IV is crowned. Henry Tudor is public enemy number one, and more Shakespeare is butchered for the yellow wobbly parts, even as they all head off to kill more prisoners. Weren't medieval times brutal, eh, folks? Meanwhile, in the safety of his chambers, it dawns upon a delighted Edmund and his chums that he is now a prince of the realm, although their delight is muted by the arrival of Prince Harry, looking to get the statistics of the battle averages worked out in a very long-winded and crickety-cricket sort of a way. Edmund naturally takes all the credit for the many brave deeds he hasn't done, and also claims credit for several things nobody has done, and the one thing he ought not to have admitted having done. Meanwhile, Percy is left looking foolish, which, to be fair, does come fairly easily to him. We should note, however, the first mention of the Bishop of Bath and Wells, a post that the Blackadder series may have done more than anything else in recent decades to raise the public consciousness of. Relaxing at last, Edmund then discovers that the dying man they found in the hut has now been put in his bed by Percy, whose idea that such a wealthy man might reward them is immediately repeated as his own idea by Edmund. We've all been in meetings like that. Buoyed up by his own genius and the enthusiasm of his fellow conspirators, Edmund finally transforms himself via a false start and a couple of suggestions from Baldrick into the Black Adder. We cut to a comedy montage of the That One, Those Shoes variety as Edmund's black outfit is constructed and revealed in all its alarming magnificence, and his very, very alarming new haircut is exposed to the world in all its ignominy. Somewhat later, 
a short corridor scene shows how his power has shifted slightly, and as he returns to his chambers to try on a princely coronet, he sort of recognises the Henry Tudor in his bed, but ignores the doubts and tries a little extortion instead. And as Edmund finally gets a quiet moment to try on the coronet, he's bought himself. Peter's ghost appears, still calling him Edna, rather matter-of-factly referring to the fact that someone cut his head off, and generally getting a bit of a long-overdue revenge haunting in via some rather dodgy head-floating effects. As if life hadn't already taken enough of a turn for the worst, his mother comes banging at the door, asking whether he has someone in there with him. Her man-woman sheep inquiries seem very open-minded, or perhaps the medieval world was far more tolerant and nowadays of that sort of thing. After another round of comedy headless king gags, few of which would have been done any better on the Ghosts of Motley Hall, Richard disappears off to another banquet with a threatening you'll be seeing me again later to Edna. Edmund's mother promises to keep as quiet about his nocturnal sheep-worrying activities as she does about Harry's fear of spoons or his father's very small private parts, which is encouraging. But it does give Elspeth some delicious lines to twinkle over as Henry Tudor adds a couple of incriminating bars to the proceedings. And so we arrive at banquet number two of this rather lavish-looking production, with Brian doing his very best food-flinging and chatting with Harry over Richard's empty chair in a very Randall and Hopkirk deceased kind of a way. Although perhaps there are rather too many I'm-here gags from the supposedly invisible Peter Cook. However, in the best tradition of Macbeth and Hamlet, only Edmund can see his ghostly accuser, which might be a relief to anyone with a line like, Don't dicky me, ducky. The king bangs on the table for silence to propose a toast by Brian at his most booming, bidding a curse upon the man who slew Richard, as Richard himself continues to shout, It was him to anyone who will listen, which, apart from Edmund, is of course nobody until they bore him beyond death with all their endless toasts, and he vanishes for apparently the last time with a weary, That's the last you'll see of me, although for Edmund it isn't. Meanwhile, the portrait of Henry Tudor is brought in to be desecrated, and for Edmund, the groat finally drops, and he crawls away in terror, with Peter Cook continuing to haunt him mercilessly from every nook, cranny and cupboard. While we're at it, I should point out there's a very familiar-looking BBC Iron Maiden prop lurking in the bedchamber. Back on location, as Edmund chases on horseback after the now fleeing Henry Tudor through the dark and eerie fog, Edmund comes across possibly the very same three witches, including one who it must be foretold will one day be Ethel from EastEnders, that once caused Macbeth so much trouble. And so finally, finally, we reach the foretelling of the episode title and find out that, against all of our expectations, one day Edmund, the Black Adder, you shall be king. And whilst that turns out to be something of an overstatement, his comic descendants would be masters of their domain for several years to come. Quite pleased with that good news, Edmund gallops off into the fog as the credit rolls and the cast appear in order of precedence. And finally, as those long credits are rolling, my earlier historical lie is revealed, for there are in fact lyrics to the theme tune after all. To be honest, I'd completely forgotten that there were, but then Howard Goodall, for it is he on loot and serpent wrangling duties, does bring us the first mention in the series of a cunning plan, and that, you might say, is very cunning indeed. But wait, what's this? In the post-credits, the three old crones still lurk to realise their ghastly case of mistaken identity in reference to a completely different series about the rise of a king that we shall never see. Well, not unless that bloke who wrote the additional dialogue, some bloke called Billy Shakespeare, can come up with a decent plot or three anyway. Considering the much-loved nature of the later Blackadder series, it still comes as something of a surprise to find just how different the first series is to what follows. It's not bad, it's just very different in both style and content, and it's the smartness of the later series that leaves this one feeling like a tentative toe being dipped in the ocean of comic genius on a wet midwinter weekend in Bogner by an 
aquaphobic uncle wearing a handkerchief hat who's been told to go off and have a paddle. <laughs> <laughs> And thank you to Martin yes. for doing the Black Adder. Yes, that's a really nice article. Indeed. Yes. I mean, I have to agree that that first series is is actually very good. Yeah, I'd forgotten how well that first episode's directed because it mm. the, it opens and there's a shot of a the banquet table as Martin says, and it just goes on forever. Yeah. And there's so many extras. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of money up yeah. on screen. You yeah. know, it really puzzles me as to why the first series isn't more popular. I think, well, it's that thing that Michael Gray came in and just said it was too expensive for the mm-hmm. figures it got, basically. Yeah. Um, it, not enough well, laughs watched. or viewers mm. per pound, basically. But, you know, I mean, episodes like The Witch Smell of Persuaven. Oh, that's, I mean, that's great. I love that episode. Yeah. I mean, to get an actor of Frank, Frank Finley's calibre in a comedy series playing a comedy part, yeah. you've got to be doing something right. Yeah, I know, but... And I, I love the the way it sort of dabbles with fantasy as well. Yes. You've got the implication that the Queen has got sort of magical powers, yes. haven't you? Yes. And to me, that, op- that that alone opens up a whole load of storylines mm-hmm. that had the series run yeah. for more episodes could have done. or had they done a second series in the same mm-hmm. you know, time frame, yes. she could have come in at the start of season two and saved everybody yes. or something like that. Yeah. Um, and given her more to do, frankly, yes, as well. Yes, yeah, because all she gets to do really is to be confused in the background, doesn't mm. she? So, yeah. But, but yeah, I like the the Queen, um, the uh, Queen Bane's beard, is it? The one where he's supposed to marry Mimi and Margulies. Oh, yeah. And then he ends up with a 12-year-old yeah. and they have to go to bed early. <laughs> Can I have a drink of water? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's a shame that people tend to look down on that. I mean, I know somebody has said it, it might be Richard Curtis or John Lloyd that it's not funny seeing Rowan Atkinson fall off a horse from a distance, but <laughs> it, it is kind of quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. But there so. you go. Anyway, we should do a few loose ends yes. of things that we didn't quite get right yes. so far. Ian Lavender was actually born 1946. Mm-hmm. I think we said 47 in the yeah. piece. Ensa stands for Entertainment's National Service Association, or mm-hmm. if you believe Mr Humphreys, every night something awful happens. <laughs> um, people that were in ENSA included uh, Dora Bryan, Arthur Askey, Wilfred Bramble, Spike Milligan, Jack Warner, and Mr Granger. Mr Granger, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, we're not at all sure now that Larry Grayson or Kenneth Williams were in ENSA. 
Uh, Kenneth Williams was in the Combined Services Entertainment Unit, which came after ENSA. Yeah. And we think Larry Grayson failed his medical. Yes, so he probably didn't do anything at all in the war. Yeah, but there we go. I think that's all all the loose ends. Yes. um, Yes, um, and to wrap this up, we wanted to watch something with Ken Dodd in. Yes, and after his sad death a, a few weeks ago. I mean, there was one possibility that we could have done, Mm -hmm. which was, we want to sing. We're not miserable, are we? At five past five, a new series returns to BBC One. We want to sing! Who wants to sing? We want to sing! With an audience of 300 children, the return of We Want to Sing, introduced by Ken Dodd with special guests, Middle of the Road. Some programs are BBC Television, Saturday. But we decided not to because yes. even as a kid, it was one of those shows that annoyed me because yeah. it had like an audience of three hundred annoying annoying children, children. Yeah. <laughs> annoying sort of stage struck children. And <laughs> you know, th- things like an audience with Ken Dodd are yeah. fantastic. They are things yeah. which I don't think we can even do justice. No. I'd just say just sit down and watch and something. Watch like it. That. Yep. yep. But in the end, we thought, well, he made a number of appearances on the good old days. He did. And mm-hmm. he was always one of those people they'd save till the end because yes, he was make, so good. Make you sit through the whole thing first. So uh, we invited Warren to join us. We did. And we sat down and watched an episode from 1978. We did. So here's what we made of it. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Well, boys and girls, what do we make of that? Set of hilarious. The good, the good old days, tenth of January, nineteen seventy-eight. It's the silver, the jubilee, silver jubilee, jubilee edition. Edition. Yes. Yeah. Right. You, should we go through this? Okay. Uh, yes. If you must. Trapeze lady. What was on the other channel? Can <laughs> we watch that? A trapeze lady enters yes. through through the sort of back of the stage. Yes. Bursting mm. through the and, sort of paper thing. And swings over the audience who look deeply worried. There's put, a, a, a wave of terror going yes. through. Put the audi- audience. audience is nervous. Yeah. Skimpy and flexible costume with floral <laughs> bathing cap. Yes. <laughs> a, a somewhat unexpected start. Yes. Yeah, that wasn't expecting that. was a sort of... Um, yeah. 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 And then, sure. then Pan's people are looking rough. <laughs> oh, God. They've aged by about 40 yes, years. It's the, it's the Players' Theatre troupe. Yeah, oh, so, was it? Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, the ladies come on doing sort of waving their arms about exercises. Yes, doing exercise things. Or oh, uh, semaphore signals. Doing semaphore. semaphore signals and very slow splits, yes. which are they written were, out. They were painful, yes. weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Lots of bending about on stage. Yes. I've just put in capital letters... Audience is easily amused. <laughs> yes, yes, very the easily. Audience, amused. The audience was interesting. Yeah. So. Yes. Lisa, I'll let Lisa explain what she's noticed yeah. about the audience. It's great. There, there's a lot of fake moustaches this time. <laughs> well, I've got old he, man with wonky tash. Yeah, he had a wonky tash, but there was a lot of ones that were very obviously not the owners. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you think they they come in and they say, right, buy your tashes over here? Yeah, they just, I don't think you have to, oh, sorry, buy them and they just stick them on. Come over here, plonk, come here, plonk. Get my wife, have one. (laughs) I put dead fly dance. They lie on their back doing the dead fly. I just put get on with it. (laughs) It goes on for too long, far too long. Uh, Landing a jumbo jet with semaphore. Yes. If they're landing a jumbo jet, I don't know where the nearest nearest airport is. It's a bit lost, the plane, I think. Mm. Uh, nearly falls off stage. Yes. Oh, yes. She's doing lots of sort of um, somersaulting over the over people, isn't they're she? And like the stage is not huge. Yeah. yeah. Stage is not huge. Is very small. Nearly ends up in the audience pit. And I've just put fleshings. <laughs> fleshings. Oh. Yeah, because they've got these sort of undergarments that are flesh-coloured. Yes. <laughs> If you could see our shoulders shaking at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, here we go once again. Hey. Oh, he's got a hanky. Oh, yes, he has his hanky. He, he clicks his, his hanky about. This is uh, Leonard Sachs, we should yes, say. Leonard I love Sachs. Leonard Sachs. The chairman. Mm. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, the set dressing's interesting. <laughs> yes. There's a load of red and white doilies yes. hanging from mm-hmm. the... Sort of boxes. Yeah. They, they almost look like they're sort of French Revolution kind of things. Mm. It's that sort of style. Well, it does it? have an international flavour, we must say. It does. We've got, yes. uh, uh, um, yes. coming up, yeah. uh, we have Vernabon Brown Sings <laughs> and, <laughs> and the evil puppet master from Spain. Yes. More on him later. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of tinsel about, yes. isn't there? So, well, it's just after Christmas. Mm. Nobody got around to taking it down. Oh God, roller skaters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's enough. There's a, so far, we've got quite a few death-defying stunts going on. Yeah. Here, haven't we? People throwing themselves on bits of wire in the ceiling. Mm. People catapulting themselves over the top of other people on stage. And now we've got mm. the killer roller skates, yeah. haven't we? Yeah. Oh, they're really small little podium as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and oh yes. And what joins the roller skates? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> man with tray. I put half-assed clownery <laughs> with, me- with metal yes. plate and champagne bucket. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and they went for the almost the first on-stage live castration, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, the big sword. She had a big <laughs> chopper. Because the woman's yeah. got a big chopper yeah. twirling round, yeah. and the bloke has to keep jumping over it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I say she's got a good grip, grip on her teeth, yeah. and I yeah. put no more nails. <laughs> <laughs> and I put hit him in the mush. <laughs> Because it was going on and on, wasn't it? Yes. And then we start to heckle when that happens. Too long. (laughs) Some audience woman wearing a pink thing with 70s glasses. Yes. And and, and convincing dyed hair. What was the pink thing? It was a hat of some kind. I don't know. She was out of focus behind um, Almost like Hilda Rodgen had turned up, wasn't it? Her hair in curlers. Yeah. But it was the dark hair. I'm going, is that hair or is that hat? Oh, I think it's hair. Oh, that's dyed. (laughs) It's interesting that they... (laughs) Chose her to go behind, almost behind Leonard, yeah. so she'd always been shot. Yeah, so there's a bit of colour behind him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Revenge of Minnie the Minx. Oh God, yeah. Two <laughs> two Violet Elizabeth bots come on. Yes, two adults dressed as children doing yeah. twee as, singing, as played by Benny Hill. <laughs> After he's been mated with a pink French fancy. Yeah, because they've got those puffy skirts with the... Oh, uh, yes. yeah. yeah. Message to the audience, the doors are locked, no one's going anywhere. <laughs> you will enjoy yourselves. You will enjoy yourselves. And then... <laughs> and now... Oh, God. Oh, no. The Spanish ventriloquist. Oh. 
Oh, oh. Uh, I hate ventriloquists. I anyway. do. Dolls are evil. And, and Spanish, the Spanish ventriloquist as one of the most <laughs> evil pair of dolls I've seen in a very long time. What did you describe the doll as? Well, I put as doll, Jackie. Doll, Jackie, yeah. Jackie. Yeah. <laughs> doll from hell is nosy bonk's love child. <laughs> it's meant to be cute, but it's just horrific. You yeah. said dead of night. What's mm. dead of night? Oh, dead of night's an Elin horror film. Um, mm. It's. Uh, um, Who's the famous Michael actor? Redgrave, is Michael it? Michael Redgrave yeah. is ventriloquist. And, and the uh, doll takes him over or something, isn't it? Something like uh, that. The, do- the doll has a life of his own. Yeah. And in the closing bits, he- he's strangling and killing the doll. And you can hear him screaming. But he's doing the voice for the doll as well. Oh, oh. And it's quite disturbing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is this live on stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a leering gash of a mouth. Yeah. Then oh, there's yes. A, then there's it's a like wide, road accident. Then there's a wide shot. And you, and realize, you realize that there are two coffins. Yes, on there's stage. another. Yes. There's another doll. <laughs> Something's going to. There's something even worse is going to come out in a minute. <laughs> oh God, yes. <laughs> and then he twists. He turns them round. Yeah. And there's a puppet dressed as. What well, no, re- no? You said the per- first puppet was dressed as though it was going to sing any old iron. Yeah. It's just absolute... Cockney, wasn't it? Or, yeah, oh. it's a weird checked. It was almost like it was in like a, a chimney sweep from uh, Mary Poppins, wasn't yeah. it? But with with checked collar and hat. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. then out comes the Kiora Crow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be your dummy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a. It's a crow in a sort of tailcoat. And top hat. And a top hat. Oh. But it's, it's like got, an undertaker crow. But it's got human legs and proper hands. Yeah, it's yeah, really weird. freaky. And he does this really horrible deep voice that is just on the edge of being... Sinister. Sinister. Because there, oh. there used to be an announcement at work with a guy like that that did an announcement for salmon. And if you were down an aisle, you would think he was right behind you because it sounded like he was whispering in your ear. salmon. No, not evil salmon. Evil voice. Evil voice. Evil right. voice. Yeah. And you said you you commented, Warren. It looks like something that's one of the genetic experiments that's escaped from the cages and you killed Toby Wren. <laughs> yeah, it's mated with a human and it's not quite right. And all I put is, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> then it sings. Okay. Oh yes, but it it, it sings. Wandering his... star. Yes. Lee oh, Marvin. he does. Yeah. Lee Marvin, wandering stars, in a demonic voice, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Mm. So far, the entertainment's been. How will we describe it? Um, Mediocre. <laughs> then our guest artist arrives. Hey! Sponsored by Fuller's. It's Dora Bryan. Yeah. Oh, bless her. Cotton sock. <laughs> Doing Lassie from Lancashire whilst dressed as a toilet roll holder <laughs> yeah. cover. Yeah, one of those flary sort of yeah, you had to dr- dress things you'd put yeah. over toilet rolls yeah. and she does a stand-up routine she does as well yeah. as singing yeah well i would dispute that she's singing <laughs> yes she's, oh, she's doing, doing talking singing talking singing she's, she's doing rex harrison speak sing <laughs> then some warbling couple come oh, on and they oh, do four brilliant. songs it's, it's Four it's, songs. That's three songs too many. This is Vernon Von Brown and who's the other one? Michelle but, Dutrice. <laughs> Michelle Dutrice. Well, you said he was sort of like Von Braun or possibly Lance Percival with a smaller nose. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Lance left his nose at home. <laughs> she, yeah, she's like Michelle Dutrice. It's not the most comic of turns. No. And at this point, you are absolutely aching for Ken Dodd to yeah. come on, aren't <laughs> yes. you? Yeah. Um, they do some high notes and everybody's glasses shatter in the audience. Yeah. They were high. They were. They high. were very high. Oh. Uh, Spike Milligan fruit song. Yeah. 
It would have been funny if he'd done the Sprite Milligan fruit that song. That would have been the fresh fruit song, yeah. Mm. Then you noticed, Warren, there was, a, there was a ghost man in the audience. Yes, it suddenly pans to the audience. And there's a line of people, and there's the most palest man in the world. Yeah, he looks there. like he's been drained of all his blood. <laughs> Do you think Hinchcliffe was in the, yeah. the audience pumping his blood out? He's, he's like Bernard Archard in um, Pyramids yeah, of Mars. Mars. yeah. We said it's something like it's like something from the undead quiet. Yeah. Before realizing that wasn't what it was called, <laughs> the undead quiet. Uh, <laughs> then, then the bloke sort of sits on a on a on a thing near the front of the audience. Uh, 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 a little it? little stool little thing. Stool a called, stool. Yeah. A padded stool. A padded, a padded stool. stool. And he does a hello girls <laughs> smile. Doesn't yeah. He? And it's really there. creepy. Would you take sweets from this man? No. No. <laughs> I put Lisa is wincing at the high notes. Yes. Or when I put hairy caterpillar moustache. <laughs> not not hairy, on the bloke. I miss the hairy kit- kit- caterpillar moustache. <laughs> the caterpillar moustache. I'll have a pint of what she's drinking, please. <laughs> and then in just big letters it says, Hallelujah. Yes. yes. Da 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 As Ken Todd comes on yeah. in a Union Jack hat and coat. Yeah. Sort, of, uh, sort of slightly John Ball, but not quite. Descri- what was it you said he had a backdrop of Coronation Street? Yes. yes. Um, he describes it as a fantastic Victorian DOS house yeah. <laughs> and he's got a massive tinsely tickling stick yes, which he uses to tickle the audience does he knock somebody's hat off with it? I don't know, it's hard to tell from yeah. the camera angle but we've just written I wonder how long he actually did because yes. <laughs> about, there's about 5, 6 minutes, 10 minutes max mm. so and I can't believe that's all he did no, we're looking at 5 to 6 days aren't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised they got out at all Alive, yeah. yeah. But you are just so pleased to see him. Yeah, he's just—it's just—it's such a big jump from what's been on before. Oh, absolutely, and you can yeah. see the quality. Yes, and, and the problem is he's not on for that long either. No, he? he's yeah. not. He's not on for. They could have cut two of the bloody songs, and he could have done another five ten minutes. But you you can see how this is structured, isn't it? You yeah. save you save the good one till the near the end. Last. Absolutely, yeah. make them stay right to the end. Yeah, if Ken Dodd had come on first, everybody would have gone home. Yeah, that would. Be... <laughs> <laughs> there would have been nobody in the audience. Anyway, so um, <laughs> sadly, Doddy uh, Doddy goes off. Yes. And then we get the sort of a uh, montage singing bit, don't yes. we? Yes, um, you always get with the, with the armed bits. forces. The armed forces. Oh, that's yes. when it's time to buy your Kiora from the crow, isn't it? <laughs> so there's something about a soldier with high kicks. Yes. <laughs> and Lisa, you said something about impressive scaffolding. Yes, because they they they've got some red coats on. And the ladies. The ladies, and mm. there's there's nothing moving under there at all. They're obviously obviously <laughs> tightly bound there's in. There's no military manoeuvres. No going military manoeuvres no. going on. No. Mm. And uh, take your eye out. Then, <laughs> then some sailors come on. Yeah, <laughs> slightly camp sailors. And I just put said. ship ahoy. Yeah. And yeah. then enter Britannia wearing a fireman's helmet. Yeah, or Britannia's helmet. <laughs> no, it's a fireman's helmet. Yeah. It's one left over from uh, Dad's army. <laughs> uh, Mary Lloyd yeah. singing about she's one of the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit. Yes, and I would like to know which Cromwell this was. Well, we can look it up later. Oliver or Thomas? Yeah, right. Then there's five minutes of tap dancing. Yeah, which is tedious. Oh. Nobody oh, can do good tap dancing unless they're Roy Castle or Brilliant. Yep. At that point, three people within this room were extracting teeth with pliers. <laughs> <laughs> we just put, where's Brucey and Roy Castle when you need them? Yeah. Then, Give me something better. <laughs> then into pack up your troubles, yes. which yeah. you said made you just think of Sapphire and Steel at yes. this point. Yes. And I just put Rissoles. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yeah, because they, that, they come very on. Apt. They yes. come on with signs which they turn round to say, you know, twenty-five years, I, good I be, old days. I better explain the Rissoles yeah. bit though, because um, it's a it's a Laurel, Laurel and Hardy. Laurel. <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> it's a two Ronnies musical bit in a soldier's canteen where all the soldiers are holding letters um, and then they rearrange them and it spells Rissoles Um, originally it spelt soldiers Um, it's a cheat because soldiers and Rissoles are not anagrams of each other because soldiers has got a D in it but there's an outtake where they've got it round the wrong way and it says lost years <laughs> there's just a few seconds on the tape where they've, they've got it completely wrong and then you said loads of people come on and try and work, try and work out, out what's what gone wrong. wrong so these people come on and it says 25 years good old days and she nearly turns it round the wrong way yeah. <laughs> 1953 to 1978 yes wow and yes. then it's all over yes, <laughs> yes. and uh, well well <laughs> What can we say about this edition then? Ken Dodd was good. Ken Dodd was by far the best thing. Yes. I think. Outshone. Yes. Outshone, yeah. 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 And some of it is just nightmarish. <laughs> yes. All the ventriloquists. They should ban ventriloquists. Yeah. Just don't don't have. Uh, They're evil. Don't don't have nightmares about singers. singers. Don't have nightmares about the Kiora Crow. Yes. But there you go. There's the good old yes. days. Yes. We salute you, Ken Dodd. Yes. yes. Thank you Absolu- for all the laughs. Absolutely, Absolutely. brilliant. Thank you, sir. I bring three pieces of news. Baldrick, where's the usual messenger boy? That is the first piece of news, my lord. He's run away. I see. And what is the second piece of news? The second piece of news is that you can't do a very good impression of Rowan Atkinson, my lord. I'm not sure that's news to anyone. But why has the messenger boy run away? Because of the third piece of news, my lord. And what precisely is the third piece of news? The third piece of news? Yes is that the massed forces of the Shy Life podcast are massing on the heath. In a mass. What? Run for the hills! Run for the hills! But we're in the middle of pool, my lord. There aren't any hills. Well, what are they doing? Yeti and John and Cromarty are waving placards demanding three, three suites for podcasters and Casper the Robot and Ick the Alien are flying around the park in a spaceship, dropping leaflets advertising their belated Christmas special, my lord. But that's terrible. They'll get all the publicity and no one will remember to listen to us. There's only one thing we can do. And what's that, my lord? If you can't beat them, get them to join you. Run to Paul's house at once and ask him to do another article for us sharpish. What should we ask him to do, my lord? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Get him to do bless this house or something. 
But it's a long way to Mr. Paul's house, my lord. It'll take me ages to get there. Would a punt up the posterior help you to get there any quicker? I expect so, my lord. Then get Percy to give you one. I'm not going anywhere near your posterior without a ten-foot lemon-scented barge pole. Oh, you say the sweetest things, my lord. Get on with it, man. And I use the word man in its loosest possible terms, of course. Um, I meant to have a word with you about that, my lord. Uh, look. Good lord. Uh. <laughs> that was episode 21 of Round the Archives, starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings and Martin Holmes. Thanks also to IT Williams. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for The Black Adder, The Foretelling, was by Richard Curtis and Rowan Atkinson, with additional dialogue by William Shakespeare. And the producer was... John Lloyd! rather a beautiful Sunday morning. You can hear the birdsong. And I've driven to Hayfield, uh, basically just to see the... I'll just shut the window. Just to see the um, birthplace of Arthur Lowe, where Derbyshire put a nice blue plaque about oh, seven years ago now. Um, it's a gorgeous morning. and it, It's an ordinary little... He, he was born in an ordinary little stone terrace in Derbyshire. Nothing fancy. There's a very big house about sort of half a dozen doles away, but, you know, maybe he just looked at that and thought, fancy some of that. Right opposite, behind the uh, houses in front of them, there's a cricket pitch, which is rather nice and reminds me of the Freddie Truman episode. But, um, yeah, quite ordinary, really. I don't really know, I suppose, what I expected. Find the essence of Arthur in uh, Hayfield. But, well, you know, it's uh, it's a very nice plaque. It's a blue plaque was put up. And, um, yeah, here we are. And I'll get back to actually reading you words that I've actually written, because I obviously don't know how to do this spontaneous stuff. See you later. My lord, I bring, bring three... My lord, I bring three pieces of news. Baldrick, where's the usual messenger boy? That is the first piece of news, my lord. He's run away. I see. And what is the second piece of news? The second piece of news is that you can't do a very good impression of Rowan Atkinson, my lord. I'm not sure that is news to anyone. But why has the messenger boy run away? Because of the third piece of news, my lord. Lose? Lose. Start again. Come in, Parker. Sit down. <clears throat> now, I've... <coughs> I've coughed. <coughs> <coughs> That's, that's got it. <laughs>